All right, so here's your mini message before the message this morning. Whenever you come to church, here's my, here's my encouragement for you. Pray and ask God to meet with you when you get here. You often find that God meets you in proportion to how you seek him. And there is something incredible about coming and celebrating with the people of God, and it should be a celebration. We have been blessed with much. We have been given much. We have been saved from much. We need to celebrate what God has done. So praise the Lord for incredible, by the way, gospel-centered worship. If you go back through those lyrics, you just sang the gospel. I can preach the gospel. You can share the gospel. We can sing the gospel. And by the way, today we're talking about living the gospel. How's that for a segue this morning? So honestly, we're talking about gospel living, and we're exploring how the gospel changes everything. Uh, since being at Sherwood, I have tried my best to emphasize that there are two broad categories for gospel application. That is before salvation and after salvation. Before and after. That is the gospel is what we need to enter relationship with God, helping us understand God's law, our sin, and our great need for Christ. And at the same time, the gospel is what we need to enjoy relationship with God, helping us understand God's character in God's word and our ongoing need for Christ to live his life in and through us. We never graduate out of the gospel. It's not that that's the foundational truth and then you move on to deeper truths. Rather, the further you walk with Jesus, the more you will find that every part of the Christian life finds its fullness, its depth of understanding, or its basis of application in the gospel message. And this is a series about exploring the facets of the gospel, the applications of the gospel. Questions like, what does it look like for a believer to grow into the gospel? What does it look like for the gospel to change our everyday life? Everyday things like going to work, paying bills, raising a family. How does the gospel change that? How does the gospel change things like relational disputes? Has it changed things like getting along well with others and controlling emotions? How does the gospel impact different pieces from how we serve and minister in the community? Like, here's my thought. If God has changed our life, our character, and our eternal destination through the gospel, if because of the gospel, God is living his life in and through us, shouldn't that change the way we live every day? The Bible tells us it should. So today we're going to focus on the gospel and how it influences financial decisions. And here, here's the thing. Think of this morning as kind of a, a message that is a springboard into a much broader conversation. Because we're actually kind of merging two of the most talked about, most often mentioned themes of the Bible. We're talking about the gospel and you're also talking about finances. Uh, many of you already know, there's over 2,300 verses in your Bible that are specific to how you handle money and possessions. That's a pretty broad topic. 
At the same time, the gospel, the redemptive story of God begins in the book of Genesis and it ends in the book of Revelation. It's literally the central story that goes from one side of the Bible to the other. Just this last week, I was telling Bria that I found enough incredible information in prepping for this message that I could preach 10 messages easy on the gospel and finances. Now, rest assured, I'm not going to preach all 10 today. But today's like a down payment for what's going to come down the road. So today, we're basically, we're going to lay a foundation in this understanding of how the gospel and finances come together. And to, to help this morning, we're going to narrow the scope to how it is that the gospel impacts our perspective as well as our priorities when it comes to stewardship. Now, before I go any further in this, let me tell you why this is such an important topic for every single believer. Number one, there's no way that we can overstate the importance and the significance of the gospel. Amen. I keep bringing it up week after week after week, central story to the Bible. But at the same time, there is also not a way that I can understate the scope of finances in our daily life. This is not just a, a little issue on the side that if you get a chance, you can maybe think about it and pray about it. Instead, almost every major part of our life somehow is connected back to finances. The roof over our head, the food in our stomach, the clothes on our back, the education of our kids, the cars we drive, the entertainment we enjoy, the careers we choose, the investments we make, the future we want, the standard of living we have, the debt we incur, the gifts we give, and the list could just keep on going from there. Our financial decisions will either take us deeper into a more meaningful walk with God, or listen, they will expose that God is not the true love of our life. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How we spend money is a great indicator of what's happening within the heart. So think of it like this. The gospel transforms the heart. Money helps reveal the heart. We're going to see how the two of these are merging together. How we handle money is just one more facet of gospel living. Now, for believers, our use of money will either fuel or it will frustrate our relationship with God. So here's our questions. What does it look like? to have our finances changed by the gospel? What does it look like to leverage the possessions that God has placed in our lives? What does it look like to leverage those for the sake of the gospel mission? We have a lot to cover this morning. And let me just say, there is no one verse or no one portion of scripture that covers every facet of what we're going to get into today. So I encourage you, kind of Keep your eyes on the notes. The big thing that we're addressing today is the gospel and finances. I will call out the references as we work our way through. But let's, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask from the very beginning that your spirit guide us into truth in this area. Lord, we ask that if there's any barriers that the enemy has brought up in our mind in order to, to make us not want to see what your word has to say about this topic. God, I pray right now that your spirit would graciously and mercifully calm our hearts and allow us to be able to receive what your word says. God will thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
So if we're going to talk intelligently about the gospel and finances, then we need to have a basic biblical understanding of the gospel and a biblical understanding of finances. Does that make sense? I think it does myself. So we have spent a significant amount of time in the last two and a half years laying a biblical foundation for the gospel. But I know that everybody who is in the room, some of you, this might be your first Sunday at Sherwood, so I wanna make sure you get at least a a snapshot of what we're describing. Here's a 30-second overview of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ that speaks of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. It addresses four massive pieces within the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The gospel tells us humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. And Jesus has done what is necessary to reconcile the relationship. Now, the gospel message itself, it emphasizes a number of pieces, but this is also in your notes. I want you to write in the pieces that are missing here. The gospel message emphasizes relationship with God, sacrificial giving, love through actions, repentance of sin, the necessity of faith, and God's path for human flourishing. Now, we're going to leave that piece up there for just a moment, but here's the importance. It emphasizes relationship with God, sacrificial giving, love through actions, repentance of sin, the necessity of faith, and God's path for human flourishing. So those pieces are extremely important. I I want you to have that in the top of your notes. I'm going to keep referring back to it because if you understand those pieces as it comes to the gospel... Notice how each of the same pieces are going to be emphasized in a biblical use of money. Notice the connection that's going to happen here. So you've already heard basic overview of what the gospel message is, but now let's give a biblical understanding of finances for just a moment. This is like a three-minute crash course for everybody. First, God owns everything. You just thought you woke up in your house this morning. You didn't. You woke up in God's house this morning. Actually, you woke up a couple times in God's house this morning. Here's another one. All right. So here's what Scripture says. Now, these references are right there for you. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's the Lord's. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord. Pause right there. It not only includes everything you see around you here, he's saying everything in the heavens is also his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. God owns everything from the stars in the sky to the sand on the seashore. Every ounce of gold, every precious stone, from the doodle bug to the blue whale, it's all his. The question for the believer is never, what does God want me to do with my money? The question is always, what would God have me to do with his money? Second statement, God blesses us with work, resources, and the ability to make money. 
Okay, references right there for you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's him who gives it. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as being in control of everything. Here it is. Riches and honor come from you alone, and you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might, and it is at your discretion that men are made great and given strength. God created us with this desire to contribute. And when we are working, when we are producing, when we are actively uh, contributing, we are alive with purpose. It's exciting. Now, we understand it's nice to take a vacation occasionally. It's important that we find time for Sabbath every single week. There needs to be a time for rest. But if you've ever been sick to the point you cannot do for yourself, if you've ever been flat on your back and somebody else has had to take care of you for several days or not several weeks or maybe several months, you know as well as I do how good it feels to get up and to work and to be able to handle things that at one point you might not be able to do. God's the one who's given us this desire to contribute. And here's the final piece. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. A steward is someone put in charge of someone else's possessions. Since God owns everything, we are just stewards of his possessions. Now, listen to these two passages and listen for the word faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God wants us to be faithful in our stewardship of his resources. Also, in the parable of the unrighteous steward, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, if you have not been found faithful in the use of worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? This is so important. In other words, how we handle money, how we handle possessions, our faithfulness as stewards of God's resources has a direct impact on the level of biblical insight we receive, listen, and the opportunities that we're given. He says, if you've not been found faithful in the use of worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches of the kingdom of God to you? So bring all of those back together. God owns everything. God blesses us with work, resources, and the ability to make money. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. The first statement is about ownership. It answers the question, who owns the things in my possession? The second statement is about acquisition. How did I acquire the things in my possession? And the third statement is about management. What am I to do with the things in my possession? All of those are mentioned in Scripture. Now, let me give you a quote from Ron Blue in his book, Master Your Money. And as I read this quote, I want you to think about those pieces at the top of your notes that are talking about major emphasis of the gospel message. It, those pieces were relationship with God, sacrificial giving, love through actions, repentance of sin, the necessity of faith, and God's path for human flourishing. Okay, those are the pieces. Listen to this quote. The journey of a steward begins and ends in relationship with God. Boy, that sounds a whole lot like a gospel statement to me. It means falling in love with God's heart for the world. 
This journey leads us to know God more. Boy, that sounds like a gospel statement. And to repent, there's this word, repent of broken areas of our financial lives, greed, fear, confusion, injustice, control, and so forth. We find healing in these broken areas by submitting our use of money to the wisdom of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Biblical financial wisdom includes living simply, working diligently, and giving generously to the cares of the church, its mission, the vulnerable, and the persecuted. End of quote. Boy, there's a whole lot of those pieces that are paralleled between the gospel and a biblical view of finances. Hunter Beaumont, lead pastor of Fellowship Denver Church, regular contributor for the Gospel Coalition. He had an incredible quote about the gospel and finances. Now, before I give it to you, remember the basic storyline of the gospel. It talks about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, listen to this quote. My money theology follows the storyline of God's kingdom. It's created, fallen, and can be redeemed. Now listen, it keeps going. Though not a part of God's primal elements like the birds, beasts, and creeping things, money was anticipated in the cultural mandate. When man works and keeps his garden, he increases the value of his dirt until it becomes tradable, storable, and monetizable. After the fall, he's prone to put in his security, comfort, and hope in money and not in God. After the resurrection of Jesus, he can put his money and store it up as treasure for the kingdom to come. Your heart should have a healthy fear of the love of money, but it should also have a noble vision of how creating capital gain can lift others and advance the kingdom. End of quote. What a beautiful connection between resources and the message of the gospel. All of that leads towards our key thought, and this is what we're going to pull out the rest of our time. The gospel challenges our perspective and realigns our priorities. Each part has major stewardship implications. So we're going to take that first part. The, the gospel challenges our perspective. What does it challenge our perspective of? Uh, the first word I would say there is ownership. Now, we've already addressed this just a moment ago, but it's also worth mentioning again in the perspective area. Stewards are temporary overseers, not owners. Temporary overseers, not owners. So Ron Blue gave this quote, God is the creator and owner of the earth and everything in it. He appointed us to steward his creation. When we follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit, our financial lives will increasingly pursue God's heart, which is for justice, love, evangelism, and mercy. End of quote. In other words, as we are following Jesus, as we are walking with Jesus, as we are learning relationship with Jesus, he's saying, the more you walk with Jesus, the more you will pursue his heart. The more you pursue his heart, the more you will be focused on what is on his heart, things like justice and mercy and evangelism and caring for people. Beautiful connection. It also challenges our perspective of contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, the apostle Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So those who grow deeper into the gospel, here's what they'll discover. Jesus is enough. 
Scripture says you are complete in him. Not complete in him plus that house you've always wanted. Not complete in him plus that job, that career, that peace that you've always desired. You are complete in him. I love the way that Paul David Tripp frames this reality. He says, love of money is about identity. Love of money is about worship. Maybe the most subtle of the indicators of love of money is an ongoing, chronic discontentment in me that no matter what I have, I'm still not content in him. (laughs) I'm about to have to go down and amen myself here in a moment. I'm gonna tell you that these are pieces that will set you free for the person who wakes up every day and they don't feel fulfilled, they don't feel content, they're wondering if I just buy something else, if I get something else, if I can get that position, if I can get that house, if I can get that car, if I can get that year of that car, if I can get that new rifle with a beautiful scope, nothing wrong with a rifle and a beautiful scope. I'm just saying, we keep putting things out there and saying, when I get that, I will feel satisfied. But until he becomes all you need, you will not be satisfied. The longings of your heart just get more and more. You just keep craving and craving and craving. And here's what's happening. Families are going into financial disaster because the discontentment keeps coming up. And they say, if I could get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And Jesus is saying, you've already got me. There's no more than that. Things can make a discontented life more enjoyable but things cannot make a discontented life satisfied. Only Jesus can do that. Here's the next one, self-worth. It challenges our perspective of self-worth. It is so easy to begin to find our self-worth in something instead of Christ. When our bank accounts are growing, Whenever there's, you know, a, a, a nice bump in pay, whenever something else comes, there's, there's so much, I guess, tendency to gain our self-worth by something we have, something we possess. But ultimately, it's all his. It's only when we're living the gospel daily that we begin to see our self-worth has nothing to do with what we have. It's who has us. It's in him. The gospel also challenges our perspective of home. This could be one of the best quotes that God brought to my mind. You might not like it, I like it. So here it is. When we realize this world is not our home, we stop trying to make it our ultimate investment. We stop trying to make it all about how can this life be more comfortable. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Instead of making all of our investments about how much can I gain, how much can I have, uh, how much can I make life more comfortable, as you're in the gospel, it will begin to point you back towards something else. How do you invest in eternity? Here's the next one. It challenges our perspective of wealth. There's earthly wealth. That's usually what we look at most of the time. And there's also eternal wealth. Eternal wealth is only possible through the gospel. 
No matter what we have in this world, it cannot compare with what God has blessed us with. There are things that are far more valuable than gold and silver and precious stones. Listen to the way Jesus put this, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. He goes on and he gives another illustration of the same thing. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found a great one with great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Here's basically what Jesus is saying. When someone truly understands the kingdom, and they truly understand eternal wealth and value, they are willing to give whatever they have here so that they can gain more of that there. He said the, the person, when they understand the kingdom, they're willing to, willing to sell whatever it takes in order to acquire the kingdom. Basically, we get a chance as believers to invest in what matters for eternity. So here's the next piece. The gospel realigns our priorities from greedy to generous. Did you know born-again people who are living out the gospel are not supposed to be living for self. In fact, the idea of being gospel-centered and greedy are contrary to Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, that's the piece challenging selfishness, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Did you notice how Jesus' death and resurrection, two essential pieces in the gospel message, are those pieces that challenge selfishness. The cross reminds us of sacrificial giving. The cross reminds us that Jesus loved not just in his words, but also in his actions. Whenever we find ourselves struggling with giving and generosity, it's often because we've missed the significance of the gospel message. I want you to write this passage off to the side. This is good. 2 Corinthians 9, 13. And they will glorify God for your, your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. So they're gonna glorify God for your obedience, the confession of the gospel of Christ. Why does this happen? because of the liberality or the generosity of your contribution to them and to all. In other words, our generosity is connected back to our confession of the gospel. Here's the next piece. The gospel realigns our priorities from temporal to eternal. Now, again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. We've already talked about eternal just a moment ago in the previous section, but I want to emphasize a bigger part of the picture here. More than just seeing the difference between earthly wealth and eternal wealth, instead, the gospel realigns our priorities from temporal things to eternal things. When we grow into the gospel, we stop just seeing people we begin to see the souls of those that Jesus died for. We begin to recognize that there is a battle that is happening for that soul. Do you know how valuable the soul has to be for both God and Satan to be after it? You begin to see the fact 
that the souls of humanity will one day spend eternity either in the presence of God in heaven or away from the presence of God in hell. And whenever you begin to see it, it should shift our mentality from that which is temporal to that which is eternal. Here's the next piece. It also shifts it from our plans to God's mission. Now, this is going to be a, a great passage. It's going to take a moment to explain, but here is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, the passage itself, it seems like a standard passage, but the issue is, I want you to notice, the Apostle Paul does not say, so that he will have a more legal way to provide for himself. Listen to the way that Paul David Tripp captured this statement. He said, the shift is from stealing, self-focused, to working in order to give to others, God and others focused. The self-centered thief isn't meant to become a self-centered worker. I'm about to preach. Here it is. Here's what it says. God's grace is radically transformative and has the power to free us from viewing money as our means to get and begin to see money as our means to give. When he saved you, he did not save you so that you could go out and earn more money and still be self-centered. The gospel transforms all parts of our life to the point that it's no longer about us. We begin to say, God, it's not my life. You purchased it with a price. It's not my plans. It's your plans. It's not my home. It's your home. It's not my possessions. It's yours. It's not even my job. God, you placed me in it. So Lord, what do you want to do in my life so that you would leverage this to further the mission of Christ around the world? When we get that, people don't get upset anymore about money. You start walking around saying, Lord, where's the next opportunity? Where's the next opportunity? When we forget the gospel, we become less generous. We become more self-centered. Here's a quote from John Wesley in his 18th century message, The Use of Money. Very simple quote. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. In other words, the more you earn, the more you save, it should lead to our hands being more open that we can give more and more. This is also why believers should be concerned about the economic opportunities of others. This is not one that's talked about in a lot of Baptist churches, but I think you guys can handle this one. Here's why we need to be concerned. Sometimes due to lack of opportunity, Lack of education, lack of health, or other reasons. People don't have that opportunity to earn the money so that they might expand it the way Scripture describes. Do you know what? That's one of the reasons I'm so excited about what happens so often down at the Hope Center where it's teaching people trades, it's teaching carpentry, it's teaching plumbing, it's teaching electrical, it's teaching people how to develop a skill set so that jobs are there, so they can provide for their families. If that is not a part of a gospel-centered conversation, we're missing it. 
You'll never be able to give enough money in an offering plate to take care of everybody else out there. And here's the thing. People don't want us to take care of all of those things. They want to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I am using the talents that God placed in my life to care for my family, to pay my bills, to serve in a community. The gospel has to mean that we're focused on the economic opportunities of everyone by helping create systems for economic opportunity. Here's what you're doing. You're confronting generational poverty and you are relieving economic distress. Both of those have to be a part of the, co- the gospel dialogue. When money is being used well, it brings a lot of good. When money is being used poorly, it becomes an idol. When rightly stewarded, money can provide for our families, support our churches, bless Christian ministries, care for the needy, and generate a host of other good and biblical things. The gospel in finances goes hand in hand. The connection is so strong that I came across this quote from Billy Graham, an evangelist. You think Billy Graham's just going to focus on how people get saved. Listen to his statement. If a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. End of quote. Here's just reflection thoughts. Could it be that the enemy has used personal greed, discontentment, and selfishness in the heart of believers to make it so that we don't like it if the subject of money is ever brought up in church? Could it be that he's using the sin of our life against us in this area? Could it be that disconnecting stewardship from the gospel is crippling believers and they don't even know why they're stumbling each day? Could it be that churches out of fear of not offending anyone by talking about money are perpetually hurting the very people they're saying they're trying to protect? 2,300 plus verses in Scripture address money, possessions, and stewardship. And yet, this is one of those few topics that when it comes to going to a church, it's almost like there's a sigh in people, like, oh, they're talking about money. What if, what if a huge part of what the enemy has been doing in the lives of people for so long has been that he has a stronghold in the area of money. And because of the fact that we are unwilling to submit that part to the gospel, he keeps bringing up despair and pain and struggle and problem. It's just one of those areas where once again, it's like God says, give that to me. Give it to me. Did you know when we trust God with stewardship, that you are trusting that God can do more through your giving than what you could do by yourself if you kept it all. Every single time you give, it is an act of faith and a moment of worship and an act of obedience. Not to mention the fact you get a chance to get in on what God is doing. 
There's so much in this topic. So as we close out, here's what I want you to think about. Ask God if there's any area in your life right now he wants to challenge or realign when it comes to finances. Ask God to bring gospel truth alive in such a way that you see giving as delight and not duty. Ask God to show you how he wants to use the possessions he's entrusted to you for the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask right now, God, that as this service is coming to an end, Lord, may the, the truths that we have covered so far, may that not be something that is coming to an end. God, may we continue to live out the truths that we have heard right now. Lord, this is, this is an area where there's so much promise, there's so much opportunity, there's so much that you desire to do in and through our lives that, Lord, I pray that the enemy doesn't get an opportunity to distract and to move us away from the truths that you're trying to share. So, Lord, right now, would you have your way in this place? God, would you help us to see what we need to see? And, Lord, may you live your life in and through us. In Jesus' name.